every worldview has an eschatology. That is a, a belief about the end. So every worldview has a conception of what happens at the end of life for every individual and what happens at the end for the entire planet. The Christian worldview despite the various perspectives on the particulars of how the end comes to be, ultimately declares that Jesus wins. Christ wins in the end. Yet many Christians spend their entire life with something of a shallow, slippery conception of the end, of what it means for Jesus to win in the end this inferior conception of the end of Jesus's win is betrayed when believers start to talk about eternity and what it means to experience eternity. Far too many Christians rejoice at the idea of being at home with the Lord in the spirit where they are separated from their bodies at death and then stop. That excitement is good as far as it goes to declare to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but it fails to consider Christ's final victory over death in the kind of splendor that outshines all other eschatological end times visions of life. So a Christian eschatology that says the best thing is to be absent from the body and present with the Lord only is only marginally better than any of the past platonic worldviews that sees the escape of the spirit at death from the prison of the body is a good thing. So from this myopic, short-sighted view, Christians tend to talk about life as a disembodied soul in heaven in terms of sitting on a cloud, strumming on a harp, and singing in a never-ending choir. And the effect of that is not only that it diminishes the glory of the end that Christ has provided for us, it also diminishes the reality of the defeat of death in Christ's initial resurrection and our future resurrection when body and soul are united. So when we've considered Paul's vision of the end in 1 Corinthians 15 and his argument for the reality of a bodily resurrection, we must come to terms with the fact that heaven is not our final destination. So I want to be clear. We want to say we want to go to heaven. That's good, but it's not the end. It's not our final destination. Instead, heaven is something of a glorified waiting room before the body and soul are united in commission for service to Christ on the new earth. And affirming that doctrine is far from mundane or inconsequential. It really matters. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is going to great lengths to show that simply the escape of the spirit from the body is not enough. Belief in a bodily resurrection is the basis for our Christian hope. It's the basis for our Christian hope because it stands as the capstone of Christ's future and final victory and is the motivation for our present Christian living. 
So as we turn our attention again to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is addressing individuals who were apparently denying the reality of a bodily resurrection, perhaps because they were importing a pagan philosophy of life and the body into their Christian beliefs. Paul is arguing to say that the bodily resurrection is true and necessary. Any idea that diminishes it or negates a bodily resurrection fails to measure up to the Christian teaching evidenced by Christ. So he begins, and this is what we looked at last week, by arguing for the resurrection with laying the foundation of Christ's resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, he notes that the resurrection of Christ serves as the cornerstone for the gospel message, and it proves beyond doubt that we will be raised from the dead as well. So hundreds of people had encountered the risen Christ at the time that Paul wrote these individuals. Many of them were still alive. So Paul wants these believers at Corinth to go and talk to these eyewitnesses if they doubted that Christ had risen from the dead. So he just lays the foundation for the resurrection. Christ makes the resurrection possible, and he serves as the model for our own future resurrection. But then in the second movement of his argument, and in the text we're considering this morning, Paul departs from arguing directly for the resurrection to highlight the significance of the resurrection. So he wants in this section to show how significant the resurrection actually is. And he does this by pushing the believers to try to imagine what life would be like if resurrection wasn't a reality. So that's the section we're considering this morning. And then next week in the final section of his argument, he lays out the nature of the resurrection, the nature of the body that will be raised from the dead and of our participation with the Messiah. So keep all of these things in mind. We're looking at one section, but really at this whole chapter is one argument, an extended argument for the resurrection. So as we turn our attention then to that middle section, the significance of the resurrection, Paul begins by pointing out that the resurrection is the basis for Christian hope in verses 12 through 19. The resurrection is the basis for Christian hope. He begins in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So Paul's just leaning into this eyewitness testimony that he's already laid out, the testimony of those who had had encountered Christ. And he asks, if there are those who have verified the resurrection of Christ, how can there be any of you who deny that resurrection is even a thing? that there's a reality of a resurrection. So some were denying the resurrection as a general idea. Paul says, if Christ has been raised, how can you deny this general idea when we've seen it in particular? Now, sometimes we fail to value or recognize the value of something until it's lost. And so Paul's going to take that tactic in the next verse to go on and to describe what would remain of the Christian faith if the resurrection wasn't reality. So if the resurrection is false, this is what happens. So verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
Now, of course, he just argued there are people who have proved that Christ was raised from the dead. But for the sake of argument, let's say there is no resurrection of the dead. If you're going to consistently hold to that belief, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. So then carrying out that logic further, he continues in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. The apostolic preaching of the gospel message, of which Christ's resurrection is the foundation, that preaching would be rendered meaningless, as would the acceptance of the message by the Corinthian church. The preaching of the apostles was in vain, and their faith was in vain. If you look back to verse 2, Paul commented that the Corinthians were being saved if indeed their belief was not in vain. But what Paul is doing here is showing that if Christ had not been raised, then their belief was vain. Therefore, you are not being saved. So verse 17, Paul grimly comments that if Christ has not been raised, the Corinthians are still in their sins. They're still under God's judgment. So hope for forgiveness of sins hinges on the resurrection as a reality. Thus, not only is their belief in Christ vain or empty if the resurrection isn't real, it's actually to their detriment. They're still in their sin. And similarly, the preaching of the apostles is in vain. It's to their detriment because then the apostles would be breaking the command to not bear false witness. So in verses 16 or verse 15, Paul says, moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. So if, if the category of a resurrection is not real and Christ is not raised from the dead as the apostles had proclaimed, they're guilty of bearing false witness against God. So he continues, verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, and here he's just repeating everything he's already said, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be more pitied than anyone. So, so notice here as Paul restates everything. He doesn't argue that if the resurrection isn't real, God is also not real. So sometimes when we talk to people, they will say, well, if we can disprove the resurrection, then everything that Christianity you know, holds to is false. Well, Paul's saying the opposite. If the resurrection isn't true, it doesn't negate God's existence. It simply negates the effective work of the one who claimed to be the Messiah. If the resurrection is not real, God is still real and sin is still real and we're in danger of God's judgment because we put our hope in a powerless Messiah in a Christ who failed. This is because a Christ who can't defeat death also cannot defeat sin from which death stems. A Christ who cannot raise from the dead cannot remedy the human condition. And so we're still in our sins. 
Furthermore, those Christians who have gone before us, who have passed on in death, have also perished in their sins. And those Christians who are alive, us, in the present, are to be pitied above everyone else on the planet because we're clinging to false hope if the resurrection isn't a reality. But I think it's also important to notice that Paul doesn't commend, he doesn't speak favorably at all of a resurrectionless Christianity. So he doesn't encourage the Corinthians in this way. He does not say, you may as well believe in the resurrection. And if it turns out not to be true, you're not any worse off. So sometimes we hear this in the way that people talk about Christianity, you know, sort of the the worst effective evangelism strategy is to say, you might as well believe in God. And if it turns out it's not true, you haven't lost anything. Paul's saying you've lost everything if it turns out not to be true. So that logic of it's better to believe in Christ and be wrong about him than to not believe at all is found nowhere in Paul's theology. What is found is that putting hope in a Messiah who can't defeat sin or death is nothing less than hoping in a liar. And all you're doing is securing God's judgment rather than God's peace. So then... We need to be clear that what we believe as a church and what Christians historically hold to can't be tampered with and be undiminished in its power or truth. So we can't preach a gospel devoid of resurrection power, nor should we encourage to believe in the gospel on a whim or as sort of an insurance policy, whether or not it's true, it doesn't matter. Instead, we have to recognize that if this fundamental part of the gospel is lost, the gospel is altogether unaffected. This is especially important in our naturalistic society where we might be encouraged to preach a gospel of Jesus that says nothing of God's judgment on sin and nothing of a future resurrection or perhaps conceding that there's a spiritual resurrection of sorts. And so there are whole theological movements that argue that Christ did not raise from the dead bodily, that he was just spiritually raised from the dead, and that's what our resurrection will be as well. Paul teaches that any twisting of the gospel message or belief in the resurrection toward that end results not in something of an innocuous belief, but in one that leads to damnation and judgment. So we cannot tamper with the biblical teaching on the resurrection to capitulate to a naturalistic society. To do so would to cultivate a community of worthless belief and pitiable people. This also means that Christian thinking that puts our greatest hope in heaven rather than in the resurrection fails to look long enough or root our hope deep enough into the redemptive work of Christ. So if you're like me, very often you grew up hearing that our greatest hope is that we'll die and go to heaven. 
We don't want to detract anything from that hope because that hope is real. But our hope extends beyond that to a vision of a new earth where we are united to a body, a glorified body about which Paul will describe in the next section that we'll consider next week, where we will live out for eternity in harmony with God. So later on this morning, we'll consider why the resurrection is significant for this life and why we can't tweak it at all or place our hope just in being in heaven. But part of what a belief in the resurrection is our greatest hope does is reign us in from being so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. Sometimes Christians are accused of this. Well, Paul is going to go at great lengths, especially in the text we consider next week, to say that there is a measure of continuity between life in this body and life in our glorified body, so that what you do in this life actually does matter. So it's not as if we can say, it doesn't matter how I live now, I'm going to just die and go to heaven. Paul wants us to say how we live now does matter because we're going to be united body and soul on the earth once again. Christ's concern then is not just to get us to heaven. It's a good waiting room. You want to be there when you die because if you don't go to heaven when you die, there isn't this hope of a resurrection life in the new earth. But Christ's concern is not just to get us to heaven, but to equip us for that life on new earth in our resurrected bodies. So just as a final note on this issue, death is unnatural because it rips apart the body and the soul. So a conception of the future that keeps body and soul separated is one that's colored by death still. Christ unravels death and unites body and soul forever. So in this section, Paul's just worked out the logical thinking of what life would be like if there is no resurrection. And now he's moving away from this dystopic vision of a resurrectionless disembodied reality to reframe their thinking in terms of the reality of the resurrection. So in verses 20 through 28, he pictures the resurrection as something of the final victory of Christ's kingdom. So although he's just written about what life would be like without the resurrection, where we would be the most pitiable, hopeless, and judged of people, he now speaks the truth. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. So this is really good news. So in verses 20 to 28, he points out that Christ functions as the true human, breaking the chain of death that follows all those who have been born of Adam. So verses 20 through 22, he affirms, as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Christ is the first one who has risen from the dead. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be alive. 
So Paul is pausing here to recall that biblical narrative that we read in Genesis 1 through 3 of Adam and Eve, who are commissioned in the garden and are given free reign, except for one tree that they're not to eat from, on pain of death. So God says, you eat of this tree, you'll surely die. Of course, we know the story that the cunning serpent makes its way into the garden. Adam and Eve should have exercised dominion over the serpent and kicked him out of the garden. But instead, they listen to his promise that if they disobey God, instead of partaking in death, they would be deified. They would be made as God. So Adam and Eve disobey. They don't die on the spot. So when you're reading that narrative, you might think, God isn't following through on this. But the further you read, the text is colored by fratricide, murder, and death in the family records that follow. So death followed disobedience. Eventually, all of those human acts of killing and murder resulting in death are just overshadowed by the death toll in the wake of the universal flood. It's God's act of judgment on sin. And what we get in Genesis 1 through 9 is that all who follow in Adam's line die. Every person will face death. It's unavoidable. They might make an attempt at immortality. This is why God removed Adam and Eve from the garden so that they would not try to cling on to immortality. So all descendants of Adam die. We all face death. Life will be anything but eternal. So death comes through this one man. But then Paul goes on to show that the chain of death was broken by the second Adam, a better man, the true human, the divine Messiah, Jesus Christ. So where Adam brought death into the world, through his resurrection, Christ brought life into the world. Not the kind of life that's given to us now that avoids death, but the kind of life that endures death and passes through death. The kind that transforms death from a monster into a portal into eternal life. And the kind of life that's brought to fullness when death is finally vanquished at the resurrection of the body. So Paul's point here is that every human person who stands in the line of Adam, will die. If you're a human being, death is unavoidable. But those who are in this life, united to Christ by faith, will after death be made alive. So Paul continues in verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ, who is the first fruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Now I'll admit that this section can be confusing. But we need to have in mind, I think, that Paul is talking about two categories of people. He's talking about Adam humanity on the one hand and Christ humanity on the other hand. So the resurrection of Adam humanity, people who will all face death, 
is made possible by Christ's humanity, those who are transported there. But in this life, you have to think of two circles that overlap. And Christians stand both after Adam and after Christ, such that death is still unavoidable, but resurrection life will follow. So Paul says, each in his own order. Well, we're of the order of Adam, and so we'll die first and then be raised with Christ. And then there's the order that Christ's humanity, the second Adam, leads us into life with his own resurrection, and our resurrection will follow. So there in verse 23, Paul says that Christ, who is the first fruits of the Christ's humanity, in other words, Christ is the first of this kind, he's the new Adam, the best of the crop, if you want to think of it that way, the first crop that sprouts comes forward in resurrection life. And then afterward, at Christ's return to earth, all of Adam humanity who are united to Christ and are thus also Christ humans will be transformed into the fullness of life at the resurrection. And that's what's meant by that phrase, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Christ raises first and then all those who are united to him. And then that next sentence fills in the lines of what's happening at the resurrection. When Christ's humanity is raised from the dead and body and soul are united, that final enemy, death, is abolished. It's completely defeated and Christ's reign over all things comes to fullness. So let's read that section of text again to get this clear in our mind. But each in his own order, Christ raises first. So Christ, who is the first fruits, and then afterwards, everyone who belongs to him. For since death, and here's the, or here, here's the explanation, then comes the end. So the, when, when we're being raised, that happens at the end. That's when God through Christ, finally abolishes death. Now, some see a time gap here, and this is where I think it can get confusing, between the coming of Christ and the resurrection of all those who are united to him and the end. And so when we read there that those who belong to Christ will be raised at the end of verse 23, and then 20, verse 24 says, then comes the end. Um, some, some people see a big time gap between those things, such that they would see several events encapsulated here, including the return of Christ, the resurrection of believers, and then an extended rule of Christ, and then the final defeat of death. I think what's here is just one event. The final defeat of death happens when all who are in Christ are raised from the dead because death loses its power then in that moment, finally and forever. So I think that the coming of Christ then enacts the resurrection for all who are united to him. And in that resurrection, death is immediately abolished as a singular event. So Christ returns and when he returns, he defeats death as the rest who are united to him are raised from the dead. The result of that final victory then is that God becomes all in all. So we continue to read there that Christ 
abolishes all rule, all authority, and all power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. And then verse 27, for God has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything is under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. These verses are something of a tongue twister. Try reading that 10 times fast and you're going to lose it. Paul is trying to create a vision of Christ handing over the authorial kingdom that he has been reigning in his conquering of death to God so that God may be all in all. Paul is trying to take great pains to say that God the Father is not subject to Christ, but in fact, Christ is operating on behalf of God the Father with the result that God is all in all. Now, in these verses, there are some dangers in trying to sort out the mystery of how the Trinity operates in the redemptive work of God. Some people, and if you aren't aware of this, just block this out and you don't have to pay attention. But some, I think, have gone too far to talk about something called the eternal subordination of the Son. It's a theological category that's been created that I think goes beyond what the scripture is saying and would be misrepresenting what Paul is saying here. Yet, setting that aside, this text, like others, especially in the gospel of John, indicates that there's some level of functional subordination of the son to the father. So the Trinity works together in the act of redemption, each playing a distinctive role. And somehow the son can say that he submits to the father while they remain equal in essence. I think one help is that the focus on Christ here is focusing and emphasizing Christ in his humanity as the second Adam. As such, the subjection of the Son should not be thought of in terms of ontology, so who Jesus is for all of eternity, but in functional terms of how the work of redemption is carried out in the reign of Christ. What becomes clear, despite whatever confusion is here on how the Trinity operates, is that the triune God accomplishes redemption in such a way that God is said to be all in all. In other words, God rules the universe unchallenged by any entity or power or authority. God's reign will be fully present. He'll be all in all. Now we need to guard against the misunderstanding of what it means for God to be all in all. Some would say this is pantheism. You know, everything is divine. God's in everything. Everything is God or something like that. The phrase that God is all in all is not a pantheistic statement where reality is identical with deity, but it's a declaration that God's rule will be absolute, unchallenged, all-encompassing, and never-ending. It's everything. So as we hear these words, the reality of God's un- 
unchallenged rule enacted by the return of Christ and the resurrection of the saints is something like a North Star that calibrates the compass of our lives. And it's the reality that we declare in the Lord's Supper. Everything is leading up to the final reign of God over all things, including us in our resurrected bodies. So earlier in the book, Paul declared that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now he's filling in the lines of what happens when Christ comes. Dead are raised to life and God rules over all things so that anyone and anything opposed to God is now put into subjection. So the Lord's appearance is the final defeat of all that opposes God. So our regular participation in the Lord's Supper and what we'll see in a few moments when we turn to the Lord's table teaches us something about death, about Christ, and about the reign of God. First, about death, it teaches us that death is a great enemy and it's the final enemy. It holds out longer than any other challenge to God's rule. Death cannot be avoided. It should never be welcomed. It's an enemy. Yet, Christ conquers death, and God will make death subject to Christ. And so while death is an enemy, it's not a monster. It shouldn't have an all-encompassing, fear-giving control on our life. Death will exercise its power over us as we end our life in this world. But we walk into death knowing that for us, it is more like falling asleep than the destruction of our being. And so we don't welcome death, but we don't fear death. Our humanity will be renewed at the resurrection in Christ so that it is true to say it is not death to die. The dark hole of death is now a portal to life with Christ precisely because Christ has made the first advance on death in this war by his own resurrection. So about death, we learn that it's evil, but it's not a monster because it's finally defeated by Christ. But then as we partake of the Lord's Supper and consider what Paul is teaching here, we believe and know that Christ conquered death in his own resurrection and that that past work has future ramifications. Christ will also firmly and finally abolish death in our resurrection so we have hope in him. So in this way, Christ is the once and future king. He ruled over death once in his own resurrection and he'll rule over death in our resurrection in the day to come. So our hope is found in him. But then finally, we learn about the reign of God. The future kingdom of God is good news because it subjects everything to Christ and God's rule is all in all. So every power, authority, enemy will be abolished. It'll be utterly defeated. That's good news for us who are in Christ. For the one who right now stands against God, this is a warning of judgment. God will win in the end. And if you set yourself in opposition to God, you may find yourself winning a few battles here in this life, but you'll lose the war. 
There's no chance that God's enemies will prevail in the end. So every person must repent of sin and believe the gospel. So the call to the one who is opposed to God now is get on the right side of history because God wins in the end. For believers, there is here a motivation to share the news of God's coming kingdom, the already not yet kingdom that when it comes in its fullness will result in the defeat of those who are opposed to God. And so as an act of love to neighbor. And as an act of allegiance to God, we share the gospel to see those who are God's enemies become God's friends. And then in our own lives, we say that what we do now matters. If we live in opposition to God now, it matters then. And so we want to mount the horse next to Christ, our King, to ride into battle with him instead of working against him. That leads then into Paul's final section of this text, which is to give the resurrection as the motivation for our Christian living. On the one hand, simply because God will reign over all things in the end, there's motivation. But Paul quickly in in just a fast movement lists three areas in which the resurrection provides rationality and meaning to our life as Christians. He'll start by talking about some uh, really enigmatic, just confusing Christian practice related to baptism. And then he'll talk about his own ministry. And then he'll talk about a larger Christian ethic. But first he talks about the rationality and motivation that the resurrection gives for Christian living in verse 29, as he lists this enigmatic ritual. He says, otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? So this verse has been perplexing to Christians for a long time. And there are several possible interpretations of what's going on here. And I I hope to address these. I think on Wednesday, we'll send out an audio file for our questions and answers deal that we'll, we'll talk about this at length because it'll take some time and there are several options there. And I'll present that in more detail. But for right now, I think we just need to consider baptism for the dead in terms of what baptism is. And we need to guard against being confused in a way that would lead us to something like the Mormon practice of baptizing individuals as something of proxies for the dead. You know, so, so Paul in this text, at least we can say, just references it in passing. Nowhere else in the New Testament is this phrase used. And so to try to create a church practice based on this verse that is really challenging to understand is just speculation and it's unwarranted. And so if you have curiosity about what this means, or if you're concerned that because we're not baptizing someone on behalf of someone who has died, don't be concerned. I don't think that's warranted from this text. Second, what we can say more firmly is that in other places where Paul references baptism and where the other apostles write about baptism, there's a unifying element. And that is that baptism is a picture of passing through death to come to new life in Jesus Christ. 
So while new life is certainly experienced spiritually in the present, our baptism testifies to a future resurrection of the dead where that new life will be experienced fully. As such, any Christian practice of baptism where the participants don't believe in a resurrection of dead, the practice becomes meaningless. If the symbol has a lot to do with the future resurrection, and if the resurrection isn't real, then what is that baptism doing? What will they do who are being baptized on account of this? Well, they'll have no hope. There's no meaning to it. There's no rationality to it. That's a, a key element of baptism would just be rendered nonsensical if the dead aren't raised at all. And I think as we take this verse for all of the confusion and lack of clarity there, we can at least say baptism has to do with hope in the resurrection. And so why would someone get baptized if there was no hope for a resurrection? Paul moves quickly from this to talk about his own ministry in verses 30 through 32. He writes, why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? So I think Paul is speaking metaphorically here, especially as he's referring to fighting wild beasts in Ephesus. So the kind of Colosseum gladiatorial picture that might come to our mind there was foreign to that location. And so Paul was probably not in a Colosseum finding a beast here. I think he's just picturing people who were really opposed to the gospel. So later on in chapter 16, he talks about his decision to stay in Ephesus to continue to minister the gospel. I think he's just saying, I was facing people who were opposed to the gospel. And if I face them as a mere human, as someone who was just in the line of Adam humanity, it wouldn't make any sense to face these detractors and these people who are perhaps persecuting me in one way or another because of my gospel proclamation. Furthermore, we know that Paul faced real danger. He faced death on his missionary journeys. And he's just saying, if the resurrection isn't real, it doesn't make sense for me to do this. It doesn't make sense for me to face death in proclaiming the gospel on the one hand, because the gospel message is meaningless. But then on the other hand, it makes no sense because if I face death and die for something that won't bring life, I'm wasting my life. So the motivation and rationale for self-sacrificial gospel proclaiming ministry is that there's a resurrection and new life hope to come. But then finally, he moves into the rationale of a broader Christian ethic based on the resurrection. Verse 32, he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So he's just saying, if there's no resurrection, we only have this life to enjoy. So YOLO is the phrase used to be, you only live once. Had a friend get that tattooed on his bicep. And every time I see that, I just think of this verse. There's no hope in that. You only live once. All you have in this life is this life. So get as much pleasure and fun experiences as you can because you're going to die. Live it up but that's deceptive. So Paul says, you know, if, if that's all there is, eat, drink, and be merry because you're going to die. But bad company corrupts good morals. Do not be deceived. 
That's his next phrase. Do not be deceived. This idea that this life is all there is, so just live it to the max, live your best life now, is deceptive. Paul says here, quoting just kind of a pithy, kind of Benjamin Franklin-like phrase, bad company corrupts good morals. So Paul is instructing the Corinthians that if they allow their philosophical denial of a bodily resurrection that they've imported for, from Corinthian society to dwell in their larger theological construct, then they're going to be corrupted. So if you continue to adopt the lifestyle of those who say, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, your Christian ethic will become corrupted. Your Christian morality is going to fail. In other words, if you allow this bad thinking, whether philosophically or just practically in the way you live, influence your concept of the Christian ethic and morality, you are being deceived. So he says, come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. That is that he will rule over all things. He'll be all in all. There will be a resurrection. I say this to your shame. So as we look at this motivation for the Christian living, we just have to walk away saying that the resurrection matters for practical living now. So don't deny the resurrection theologically or practically. What we do in this life does matter and it finds more meaning because there will be a life to come that shares continuity with our life now. Paul will emphasize this in the next segment, but for right now, he wants to say the, without the resurrection, it's irrational to be a Christian. So come to your senses, believe in the resurrection, stop treating like life like those who deny the resurrection. We need to be paying attention to this because the world around us essentially shows us that life is just about what you do in the here and now. So make a lot of money, get a lot of fun experiences, and then you die. That's what our unbelieving world says. Those who would put on something of the costume of Christianity will say, your best life now is what you have to live. And so there are prosperity gospel preachers who import enough of the gospel to say you need Jesus. But then they go on to say essentially that your best life is meant to be lived now. So do whatever it takes to get that. God wants you to live comfortably, healthy, nicely now. And that's all there is to the Christian life. Well, Paul is saying, God wants you to confront death as you proclaim the gospel now, because your best life will come in the resurrection. So we must look then long with eyes of faith to the great day of the resurrection and the final return of Christ when God will become all in all. In part, we do this by celebrating the Lord's table in proclaiming Christ's death until he comes.